Welcome to Around the Block at Haas, a Here at Haas podcast focused on all things blockchain around all of Berkeley. We're chatting with Haasies, professors, blockchain entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your executive producer and co-host, Paul Brzezik. I'm your co-host, Ameya Purandare, and we're super excited to take you along the crypto journey around the Berkeley campus and introduce you to innovative people in the Web3 space. Happy to introduce some of the most outspoken Haasies in the blockchain crypto space. Nick Helgeson and Johnny Antos, both are full-time MBAs, 2022s. They're just about to wrap up all their classwork in the next two weeks and are set to graduate. They're famous around campus for launching a Web3 speaker series this semester, which initially was only supposed to have 30 people, but it got double subscribed and there were over 60 people who joined the class and they even had to expand to get a bigger classroom. So Johnny and Nick, welcome to the show. Maybe you can give a, a brief history of your journey to Haas and how you first got involved in the blockchain in crypto space. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thanks. First of all, thanks for having us here, Paul. We're happy to be here. My uh, journey to crypto started seven years ago, summer 2015. I was uh, doing an investment banking internship uh, on Wall Street in New York, and it was amazing. But also, the key way I got into crypto during it was that the investment bank was doing a deal for a Bitcoin mining manufacturer. And I had never really paid attention to Bitcoin a lot before. But after noticing that this deal was going on, I kind of networked my way onto it. And just seeing, you know, these really, you know, serious adults who had real life and who were very formal people in suits take Bitcoin seriously. I was like, there might actually be something here. So I started getting into it and reading, read the Bitcoin white paper, and then just dove into it from there. Awesome. And Paul, thanks so much for for having us. Longtime listener, first time caller on this show. Really appreciate you having us. I'm Nick Helgeson. My story is that I'm originally from Minnesota and now live in Berkeley with my partner. Uh, and as I kind of reflect on my career to date and where I'm headed, I've really always been rewarded by taking, I think, the non-traditional alternative when life has presented me with that kind of fork in the road. And after undergrad, that led me to issue a path and management consultant in consulting and instead take a job at a marketing measurement startup. And candidly, I knew very little about the space, but in hindsight, that decision looked pretty calculated. The company itself was started by the former president of Target. And he believed that this premise that customer data was a, an undervalued asset for companies. And this was also at a time where companies were waking up to the promise of shifting marketing investment from traditional to digital marketing and being able to measure its impact on both online and in-store sales. So my life at that company took a few different forms, but my sort of magnum opus was being asked by the CEO to build and grow out our business operations team. And it was an incredibly enriching experience. But despite that, I found that I really just had to do a little bit too much mental gymnastics to tie back what we were doing that would make me feel whole. And so I went back to business school to reset. I came in with a few goals in mind, one of which was to start a company firsthand. And then the second one, more relevant for our conversation was to find a space I felt at home with. And so I had lived my whole life in Minnesota and knew that I wanted the next chapter to be outside of the Midwest. And I also knew that I wanted to be at an MBA program that wasn't just going to be a refresh of what I had experienced at business school and undergrad. So for these reasons and many more, Haas really felt like the right home. And I think I speak for Johnny as well when I say I'm pretty sad for it to be coming to a close. Yeah, I guess I probably should have said also. Um, so before Haas, I made my way to a company called Prism Group, which is crypto economic and blockchain consulting for early stage decentralized projects as well as enterprises. And so I had that prior to Haas, and then I've kept working there throughout Haas. I'm going back there afterwards. So now I'm squarely in the crypto econ consulting realm. 
Nick, were you coming into Haas exploring and looking for the right industry to take a startup? And did you know that it was going to be in the Web3 space at the time? Or is that something that you discovered through your journey here at Haas? It was not a straightforward path. And in fact, most of my time has been spent exploring opportunities at the intersection of healthcare and technology. And the story there, candidly, is having come from digital marketing at a time where people are getting wise to the unhealthy relationships that they have with social media. My motivation here was to align with an industry where nobody would question the nobility of the cause I was pursuing. Frankly, it took a while for me to disentangle from that. And I'm happy that things played out the way that they did because it taught me a super valuable lesson that I think that all MBA students need to take to heart, which is you have so much less control over the process of navigating pre-MBA experience to uh, life post-MBA than you could ever hope for. And that should be a source of excitement rather than dread. And it, it took me personally a lot of white knuckling my career journey to accept and embrace this. And um, as I look back on it, there's really no way for me to have short circuited to the answer. And so I came away with the following ideal which was to help scale an organization that both my 10-year-old self and my 50-year-old selves would be proud of. And it's not something that I center every decision on, but I invoke it in times where I feel like that there might be confounding motivations like a big paycheck or a sexy title and that sort of thing. So my foray into the blockchain space first started out with a casual interest in 2017. I downloaded Coinbase. I bought Bitcoin, Ethereum, probably Zcash and a bunch of other hot coins at the time. And let those lay idle for a while. And last year, I actually took a class on decentralized finance taught by Don Song here at the University of California. This was last semester, and that really reignited my interest. And I proceeded to experiment with staking those digital assets that were laying idle in my Coinbase wallet, reading white papers, lurking on crypto Twitter and Discord, reading Substacks. And I'm glad that Johnny's here to represent the academic path into the space because I certainly represent the DIY version. In any event, what became apparent to me was that blockchain technology is a technological solution to a lot of relevant societal issues. And that a key to delivering on the promise of a better world via Web3 is making that space more accessible and amenable to adoption. Yeah, and I really appreciate the initiative that you guys have taken while you're here at Haas to create a speaker series in Web3. Blockchain at Berkeley have some collaboration with Don Sung, and as she's leading the Center for Responsible Decentralized Intelligence, RDI. Curious to hear more about how this speaker series became a, a reality. Did you have sponsorship from any of the faculty and was in any way associated with this RDI group led by Don Sung? Got it. Yeah. Johnny, you want me to take this and then I'll let you chime in after. As far as kind of the origin story with this class goes, I had been going through that journey, many dub as falling down the rabbit hole and doing so alone. And that was pretty baffling to me because, you know, I realized here we are at Haas at UC Berkeley in the backyard of Silicon Valley, one of the most, the foremost academic institutions with literally the best undergrad blockchain club that you're part of, Paul. And yet there are only a handful of MBA students that were remotely curious about Web3. And it makes sense somewhat given the audience. I think MBA students won't like to hear this, but we tend to be more calculated. We tend to be more risk averse. However, it was still comical how emergent this space it was and is. And yet I had to do most of it on my own to build that foundational context. And so I say this with love, but I'm not going to mince words here. There remains a pretty significant disconnect between the business school here at Haas and the broader UC Berkeley 
blockchain ecosystem. And while there are a lot of people that are doing stuff about it, I wanted to help contribute in my own way. And so I set out to build and deliver this what's now UC Berkeley's first ever Web3 course. And so it is housed in the MBA program and MBA students can propose teaching or facilitating a one credit class. And it frequently takes the form of a two hour speaker series where practitioners come in and sound off on various topics. And that's candidly a, a pretty poor way of teaching, particularly with respect to like the core domains that Web3 underlies. Those domains just require more of a windup for beginners to comprehend. So I had proposed a format in which the first 30 minutes would be primer content. The next 30 minutes would be an interactive demo that taught students foundational crypto behaviors. And then the last 60 minutes would be that moderated panel to bring both the core lecture and the demo concepts to life. I reached out to Johnny at the outset because I knew that he was a blockchain veteran. And honestly, he had left a good impression on me when we were in the same cohort first year. And I thought that this was a great excuse for us to just hang out. And so we went down the path whereby Johnny would develop the lecture content tailored to business-minded, web-curious students. I would design and coordinate the demos, and I would also source speakers for the panels. So the topics included things like Web3 overview, decentralized finance, NFTs or non-fungible tokens, metaverses, decentralized autonomous organizations, topics like bridging Web2 and Web3, and then finally navigating careers in Web3. And it was important that we pursued this structure that I outlined because we wanted to meet the audience where they were and at the very least give them opportunities to leave the class knowing how to do foundational behaviors like swapping cryptocurrencies, buying NFTs, that sort of thing. And the class wound up to a point that you made earlier bidding out and we opened it up to a broader public audience and we're even able to garner sponsorships externally from the Solana Foundation and Phantom Wallet so registered students could get actual money each in cryptocurrencies to facilitate those demos. And so beyond that, it's been for me personally among the most enriching experiences I've had at Haas and just really grateful for us to be able to go on this together with Johnny. Yeah, I was really struck and what caused me to want to work with Nick. I was struck by his compassion for trying to teach these things to students in a way that was understandable and not a way that was, you know, us trying to make ourselves look smarter or be more knowledgeable. Like we really approached this with how would we explain these concepts and take people in a comprehensive, holistic journey in each of these niches within Web3. We really wanted them to be able to absorb that and not just to be overwhelming. And I'm sure it still felt overwhelming to people sometimes, but we really wanted people to actually be able to understand these different topics. And even the people who are kind of on their Web3 journey already. We wanted them to, maybe they're an NFT or DeFi expert and they don't know anything about Metaverse. Um, and doing this and having to teach these concepts also forced the both of us to really dive into them, the ones we didn't know as well too. Like the, what really drove it was I think our collective compassion and drive for intellectual curiosity or like search for truth and what's really going on beneath the surface of each of these niches. I think that's what the kind of driving force underlying that students appreciated and connected with and we're like, oh, I can actually have a shot at understanding. And so just taking a look at the Web3 speaker series, I see there's a lot of different topics that you guys covered, including the Web3 technological revolution, DeFi, NFTs, metaverses, bridging Web2 and Web3, DAOs, and then nicely how to navigate careers in Web3. But maybe just starting at the beginning, if you guys could provide any context around the Web3 technological revolution, how did this get here? Why did Bitcoin take the world? 
world by storm? And what were the factors leading up? Being in the space since 2015, I think that honestly, when Nick mentioned running a Web3 speaker series class to me, I had to look up because I've been out of crypto Twitter for a while. So I had to look up like the actual definition of Web3. And I learned that it was sort of like this, you know, rebranding of crypto and bringing in things like metaverse. Because I always knew it was crypto. It was just, yeah, this, you're in crypto. And so I think... I don't know if I would say that Web3 itself really launched with Bitcoin because in those earlier days, it was only just Bitcoin until the Ethereum ICO in 2014. And then Ethereum was what kind of opened up this decentralized computing space or like the term DAP became a thing. Before that, on Bitcoin, DAP was not a term. And so seeing, yes, you can see it evolve over time to a myriad of new use cases and things that are building on top of Ethereum and other smart contract platforms. But yeah, now Web3, the possibilities just seem endless. And yes, there are issues and downsides and things that builders and creators are working through. At the end of the day, right, this just seeing an open protocol stack develop that is actually decentralized in, in different ways and along different spectrums is, I think, what excites me the most about seeing how the stack develops and then how that is integrated into society and how that might continue to give people new opportunities or change the world. And how would you guys define the difference between Web 2 and Web 3? Yeah, no, I think that Web 3 is largely defined as the next iteration of the internet, and it is underscored by notions of decentralization. I think what makes Web 3 difficult to, or perhaps esoteric for folks to grasp, is that there's a lot of other like core principles that get jammed into the definition of Web 3. So just to put more directly, I think of Web3 as the next evolution of the mobile internet that is decentralized. And I think that to add additional layers of complexity to that, a nuance to that are the basis of use of blockchain technology to aid that decentralization, as well as leveraging things like token-based economics to perpetuate that decentralization and other sorts of things. But I'd be curious to hear, Johnny, if you have uh, a similar kind of set of definitions or where you might modify that. Yeah, I think it's great. The classic one is like Web2 was on the web was read write and interact. And now Web3 brings in, that was Web2. Web3 brings in its read, write, interact still, but now you have verifiable ownership on a blockchain, which is doesn't sound that game-changing maybe, but that opens up doors for interoperability and people actually owning their assets and moving it from one platform or one protocol to another. Yeah, that's what I guess the way you could say Web2 was missing this kind of endogenous or native protocol level way of owning digital assets and them being scarce and excludable goods. You guys had mentioned that you actually got some funding support from Solana in order to run the speaker series and even deal with the contributions for initial crypto into students' wallets. Interested to hear what is Solana and also how did you go about securing that business relationship? Yeah, definitely. And this was something that we didn't originally set out to do. It was at the time, actually, it was a partnership almost born out of necessity. We were about a few weeks away from the first class and were naturally scrambling to get content in place. And we had a broad outline of what we wanted to accomplish with the demos. But as we were constructing a firmer outline of what that would look like, it became pretty clear that it would be challenging to navigate the normal channels within the university to secure funding on short notice to help facilitate these activities. And so 
So if you take, for example, the DeFi class, the decentralized finance class, where we wanted to instill some of those foundational behaviors that we know are core to using Web3 applications within a financial context. So things like how do you purchase cryptocurrencies? How do you swap them? What does it mean to stake or delegate cryptocurrencies? And how do you actually go about doing so? We wanted the demo to serve as a space for people to actually do that because it's one thing to tell people what these concepts are and it's another thing to let them do it on their own. And we just identified it as an opportunity for a win-win with respect to onboarding the students to a particular ecosystem. And so what you see pretty commonly with these blockchain ecosystems, so we're talking about Ethereum, Solana, Terra, which we'll probably speak to in a little bit, they commonly have what's called ecosystem funds that are funds and mechanisms that intend to help spur adoption and building within that blockchain ecosystem so you can build out that particular economy. As we were thinking about what was the what would be the best, most expedient way for people to be able to purchase cryptocurrencies, we could ask them to use their own money. And being cash-strapped grad students on our own, we felt that would be pretty inappropriate to ask. And then the other one would be to go through the normal channels of getting funding through the university, which Scout's Honor, had we more time and more wherewithal, we probably would have gone that route. And what we wound up doing was reaching out to a few select ecosystems and their ecosystem foundations to see if there was potential for a partnership whereby in exchange for a certain you know, amount of tokens that the, the students could use, that would serve as an opportunity for them to gain exposure to the ecosystem. So we chose Solana, which is a what's called a layer one blockchain ecosystem. I'll spare most of the details, but a few reasons why we chose Solana was the speed of transactions and the the low transaction fees were really appealing for us because realistically speaking, we only have 30 minutes to be able to even walk students through these demos. Uh, and so fortunately enough, we were able to secure funding from both the Solana Foundation, as well as an organization called Phantom, which has built a non-custodial wallet on the Solana ecosystem to the tune of, I think it was like 55 US dollars per student. So they would be able to not only purchase, swap, stake cryptocurrencies, but also plug into other decentralized applications on the Solana ecosystem like Magic Eden, which is their NFT marketplace, and purchase an NFT on their own. So they have that ownership and are able to at least to have license to explore the space further. We don't have an allegiance to the Solana ecosystem, but there was you know certainly benefits to starting there. And I think that was one of the elements of the class that left a positive impression for the students in that not only were we lecturing at them or bringing together practitioners to speak to them, but they were actually able to literally get up in the class, interact with one another, show each other the weird NFT that they might have purchased or might have considered purchasing all in service of advancing their learning journey. It's interesting you mentioned uh, Solana, the transaction speed is much faster than something like Ethereum and the fees are much lower. So from what I understand, that has to deal with the higher block time and block size that Solana offers. But in addition, they use a different consensus mechanism. So most are familiar with proof of work, which is Bitcoin.
Bitcoin and proof of stake, which Ethereum is moving to. But Solana uses something called proof of history. So posing the question to give some details on this consensus mechanism and what are some strengths and weaknesses of proof of history? Yeah, definitely. I can speak to it as far as like proof of history goes. And you're right in saying that proof of work and proof of stake are the prevailing consensus protocols that most blockchain protocols as we see use. Proof of history basically relies upon cryptographic way to create a reliable ordering of those transactions that are recorded to the distributed ledger. And basically what it does is it solves the issue of agreement on time and it allows for your point, almost instant finality of those transactions. And so again, this is a design choice that the Solana dev team made and a common way to think about the trade-offs that various blockchain protocols face can be illustrated in what's called the scalability trilemma. And you're effectively trading off between three things. One is transaction throughput. The other one is decentralization. And then the third one is security. And so in choosing a proof of history consensus protocol, the Solana development team made a pretty conscious choice in optimizing for speed, and that's largely at the expense of decentralization and security. So again, these are trade-offs that are being made, and I think it ultimately promotes this thesis around there will be multiple layer one blockchains and blockchain ecosystems that will persist over time unless the scalability trilemma is resolved, which is its own domain that's probably a conversation for another day. These are trade-offs that various ecosystems are making in these design choices. Awesome explanation. And going back to the Web3 series, how this was made a reality at Haas, did you need to go through some sort of compliance and to have any of the professors sign off on the series? If we wanted to go and create a Web3 series part two next semester, what's the process of doing so? You want to take that one, Johnny? Yeah, I know Nick coordinated and got, you need a faculty sponsor. So Nick got Greg LeBlanc, who's an economics professor at Haas, as a faculty sponsor. And then we pretty much built this from scratch in terms of the actual content and doing everything. I mean, anyone, yeah, people could technically start up a speaker series topic about anything, I think. So could be another Web3 one if people took that, took the reins there. Yeah. And to add a little bit of additional color to that, aside from getting the initial approval from the administration, um, a few elements that are needed for that approval is you need to have a general course outline and then a faculty sponsor who has agreed to and is willing to serve as an advocate for that particular class. And to Johnny's point, we selected a Gregory LeBlanc. He was our microeconomics professor our first year as we were part of X cohort, and he was gracious enough to offer to be a, a faculty sponsor. And then the class itself is generally one credit that students can take for as part of their graduation requirements, but it requires them to go through the standard bidding process that takes place. So looking ahead after this Web3 series, and now that you guys are set to graduate from Haas, so curious, Johnny, if you're still going to be planning to stay within the same Web3 consulting group within Prism, or what your next plans are? Are you going to start your own Web3 startup? Are you going to do your own fund? What's next? 
<laughs> yeah, I actually I came into Haas with a goal of potentially diversifying my career path and wondering whether am I staying in crypto, staying Web3? Am I kind of this was 2018, 2019, 2020 when I was like navigating these things. And I was like, is it do I really want to pigeonhole myself in this too much? Given that the more you know in the space, the more you realize as evidenced by the Terra collapse today, like you the more you realize that things that seem like they have longevity and are robust may not be. And so I came into the MBA with, oh, maybe I'll let, my, let myself explore other career paths or options and just see if anything sparks my interest. Like Nick mentioned, he was interested in the intersection between healthcare and technology. So I was like, maybe another kind of industry intersection with tech will spark my interest. And the long story or the short story, long story short is that it did not. I just I doubled down on Web3 and crypto and um, yeah, going back to Prism where I'll be leading engagements with clients and getting into deep economic analysis for related to crypto economics, tokens, DeFi ecosystems, really anything related to blockchain tech and crypto and Web3 and the economics of those. Things. When you're looking at the crypto economics of all these different blockchain projects, do you have any sort of framework to identify whether there's a good crypto economic model or any red flags that would have you question the validity of that project we're not a vc right so we're not trying to judge like the viability necessarily if you're familiar they're like smart contract code auditors where they will try to determine a priori or ahead of time they'll try to determine are there bugs in smart contracts that are going to cause some of they're going to lead to later on hacks or vulnerabilities we're doing that same kind of exercise but on the economics and governance side and so it's not just like this kind of binary i guess good and bad it's more like maybe an a client is introducing a new auction style mechanism for allocating a scarce resource on their network. What's going to be the equilibrium of this? What's going to be the equilibrium outcome of this mechanism once it's implemented into their previously working system? So it's pretty nuanced, right? And it's really in the weeds and in the details, but that's what we love doing and getting in there. Yeah. Back to Terra Luna was mentioned. So as there are four types of stable coins within crypto, so they're identified by their underlying collateral structure. There'd be fiat backed, crypto backed, commodity backed or algorithmic. So in the case of Terra Luna, this is an example of an algorithmic stablecoin. What is this algorithmic stablecoin? And how was it that Terra suddenly crashed over the last couple of days? I thought Terra was supposed to be pegged to the dollar. Yeah. And I think just to timestamp this, because this is an ongoing situation, we'll see where things rest after today, which is May 10th, 2022. But, um, you know, Paul, I think that's really well said as far as where we start. Stablecoin itself being a, a cryptocurrency that pegs its market value to something typically you know, the US dollar. It's an important conduit between crypto and fiat because you can more easily convert crypto while maintaining the volatility and the denomination of a native fiat asset like the US dollar. And you aptly outlined the distinctions between various collateralized as well as algorithmic stablecoins. Uh, stable but I think across the board, core to trusting a stablecoin is its ability to maintain peg. And so there's trade-offs in either approach. Neither of them is free from scrutiny. But with this situation in question, Terra is the blockchain ecosystem started by a fellow by the name of Do Kwan. He is a cult-like figure whose Twitter presence is remnant 
reminiscent to that of Elon Musk. And just a fun fact real quick, he originally agreed to join the speaker panel of our Web3 class, but unfortunately backed out. But nevertheless, Terra itself has risen to promise largely on the back of a DeFi application that was built in the ecosystem called the Anchor Protocol. And the Anchor Protocol serves basically as a money market where you can earn at one point nineteen and a half percent yield on Terra's stablecoin, which we'll get to in a second. As you can imagine, this is a super attractive alternative to keeping your US dollars in a bank, per se. But ultimately, it was and is a bootstrapping strategy for the ecosystem. So most blockchain ecosystems like Terra launched a stablecoin as an on and off ramp. And Terra's stablecoin is called UST. It's algorithmic with at one point, I think, having a market cap of about $16 billion in USD. And it pegs its currency to the US dollar through complex interplay with Terra's native token, which is Luna. And you can use Luna for other applications on the platform or hold it for price appreciation like you would uh, Bitcoin or ETH or any other crypto asset. But the premise is that every $1 in UST is supposed to be redeemable for $1 of Luna. And that interplay that I alluded to basically amounts to the presentation of an arbitrage opportunity meant to stabilize UST. So as an example, if UST falls below $1, there would be, by default, an arbitrage opportunity to buy UST for, say, 98 cents on the dollar and then trade it back for $1 worth of Luna and pocketing that profit. So eventually this trade would bring back the price back into sync. And it's clever engineering. And I'm excited to hear Johnny's perspectives on algorithmic stablecoins unproven nature throughout history, because I think he has some very interesting things to say. But under continued macroeconomic uncertainty that we have and that we're facing right now, the central authority for Terra decided to buy Bitcoin as well as Avalanche, which is another token to further stabilize the mechanism. And despite that, UST started to deviate from that dollar peg, which led to a bank run on Anchor and intensifying consequences whereby Luna, that the price of Luna tanked and UST depegged even further. And because the team had to sell that Bitcoin that they had just bought as a stabilizing lever, that further flooded the market with Bitcoin, which created downward pressure on the token and bringing the rest of the crypto market down with it, given Bitcoin as a flagship uh, token. And so right now, or last one I checked, I think UST was at around 80 cents down from it had originally risen to up to 92 cents and is back down again. And Luna as a token is down nearly 70% to all time highs. And I think that the current market cap of the overarching crypto market is to the tune of 1.5 trillion, which is considerably lower than the 3 trillion all-time high that we enjoyed just mere months ago. So really interesting point that's a point in time that's still ongoing. And Johnny, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the history of algorithmic stablecoins. Yeah, I mean, as I've actually been tracking this during the recording of this podcast, and from the beginning of this podcast recording, Luna has fallen 20% alone in the last hour, and the UST stablecoin is at 70 cents instead of 80 cents. And so this is after it temporarily repegged about in the last day or so, but now this is happening again, showing that, yeah, when trust is eroded by the community of holders and the broader crypto ecosystem, repegging for algorithmic stablecoins is quite difficult once these sort of death spiral events occur. But taking a step back, uh, you alluded to, you know, 
collateralized stablecoins like USDC. The fundamental difference right there is that you have, for USDC specifically, you have Coinbase and Circle, both centralized companies. They're the ones actually taking in real fiat US dollars. And I think maybe they back it with a few other different fiat financial instruments. But they're the ones taking in those and actually holding this treasury. And then so that the market kind of trusts that one USDC token is equivalent to $1 and is actually redeemable for $1. Whereas the world of algorithmic stablecoins is you know completely different. And that usually, like there's a, I think, recovery fund or kind of like a, a treasury that the Terra ecosystem has. But it's, it's so purpose is not to collateralize every single dollar of UST is not collateralized by one fiat dollar. That's the high level, the high level difference. And in one hand, this kind of quest for an algorithmic stablecoin is noble, right? Because if you could have this, right, you can have uh, truly money out of nothing. Like some people criticize crypto for, oh, it's money out of nothing. Most of it is not, right? Most of it is, is really not. This is a kind of akin to, if you remember in the, the kind of 2017 hype, there was this project Basecoin, and I think then changed its name to Basis. It was the, the, one of the first kind of quests for algorithmic stablecoin that actually would be robust and would have mechanisms that hold up to attacks. Like famously, George Soros, you know, broke the, I think, Bank of England peg in like the early 90s. So there's this still ongoing uh, myth of can you actually create a pegged currency and can you create a pegged cryptocurrency to a US dollar? And as Nick described, yeah, this shows that when these death cycle, death spiral cycles occur, it's quite difficult, especially with algorithmic stablecoins, for the team to use their treasury to restabilize it by putting buy pressure on the UST stablecoin in this instance. And yeah, the price of Luna, I think is, I mean, this is completely, all of this is completely my own uh, personal opinion and not that of my employer or anything. But I think that Luna, you can almost think of Luna here as like equity holders, right? And if you're comparing this to a traditional company, you can think of the stablecoin itself as like the debt portion of a company and the equity holders are like the Luna token holders. And equity being a residual claim on a company's assets or total enterprise. Luna is taking because as they're trying to stabilize UST, every second or minute that goes past that's not pegged, people lose faith in the overall system and the price of Luna also declines too. And so it's this kind of like, I guess we're, yeah, when, this is once you, once this kind of momentum effect picks up where people in the broader crypto ecosystem think this is happening and think there's a significant risk it's going to happen, they're going to sell out of both UST and you know, to other stable coins or, and they're going to not want to hold Luna, right? Which are both downward pressures on the value of each. How do you reverse the cycle? How do you stop the downward trend? Is it just up to Luna to burn enough Terra to, or in a Bitcoin and other currencies to effectively stabilize Terra? Or what can they do to effectively regain the stability at $1? Yeah, no, I think you, you had it right. There's, I think there's a path forward where LFG, which is the authority that manages the treasury for the Terra ecosystem, like there's a path in which that treasury gets drained, but the UST stabilizes. There's also a scenario in which they convene with other investors that have a vested interest in seeing UST retain its peg and buying in particular Bitcoin back at a lower basis. In particular, what that looks like is you have Bitcoin continuing to experience downward price pressure, the UST peg gets restored, and then LFG and other accompanying investors buy back into Bitcoin at a lower basis. And then I think that there is sort of a doomsday scenario in which the powers that be cease their UST defense and Luna 
takes even more of a nosedive than it already has. And UST would presumably settle at collateral value. So there's a few different, I think, ways in which this plays out and it's ongoing. And to say that I have any type of confidence around where things will settle would be arrogant. So nevertheless, I'm very interested in seeing how this plays out because I think that this has broader ramifications around the trust around algorithmic stable coins. And I think that you're going to see continued focus on this, even at a regulatory level. In fact, I think that there was Janet Yellen had mentioned or made mention of uh, UST in a committee meeting even before UST had retained its peg. I might be misremembering that, though. Yeah, I guess at a high level, I know not everyone listening, right, is an intimate, like an expert on the intimate workings of the Luna and Terra ecosystem. No matter how the mechanisms for how an algorithmic stablecoin is implemented, at the end of the day, it almost always, I think nine, like I would say I'm 98%, 99% sure that it requires to actually fundamentally believe in the peg would, for the market to believe in the peg requires one managing entity to essentially have an unlimited supply of capital in order to maintain the peg in in all conditions. And that's functionally what's being tested right now. How much capital should be burned in, in order to try to buy UST on the market and restore the peg. And we'll see how what the if the capital limit is hit, or as Nick mentioned, if other VC investors, interested parties uh, are able to backstop and be capital backstops. But it's a difficulty that is still in the last seven years of crypto has not been solved. And maybe it is like gold at the end of the rainbow. Like it, you'll never actually, maybe we'll never actually get there. Yeah, the news changes literally every single day. And with having Terra USD crash from a stable of a dollar down to 72 cents, it's pretty significant, especially when you consider it is the fourth largest stable coin behind Tether, USD, Binance, Coin, and then comes Terra. Pretty substantial. But yeah, as we wrap up our time with you guys here today, definitely wanted to catch you before you set sail on Haas and definitely wanted to get you guys to do your own episode. What the biggest trends you see coming in at 2022, 2023 in the next year that we should be looking out for within crypto? Is it the metaverse? Is it DeFi? Where do you see the crypto market heading in the next one to two years? So what are the major trends that you're personally excited about within Web3? And then I'll ask a follow-up after. Got it. I think DeFi has been one of the earliest use cases where people are actually jumping in and it's funny you can't tell if it's individuals or entities, but like kind of profit-seeking hedge funds and entities using it. But I'm excited that I think that DeFi will hopefully in 2023 kind of pivot more to actually delivering value. We're going through maybe a speculative phase of DeFi in the last few years. And so I'm hoping that it transitions away from just like the feature being make more money and actually serving underserved populations and underbanked and unbanked uh, populations. But it's very, we'll see what happens. Yeah. And then on my end, I think that in terms of where we are, where we're headed, likely continued market correction. But I think that this has second order implications that are worth calling out. We've enjoyed a pretty tremendous bull run up until this point, And that has brought about an influx of capital that, as we've seen with technological innovation cycles of the past, that capital influx is important in terms of bringing about critical infrastructure. And that critical infrastructure likely brings about more valuable crypto native applications. And that cycle continues. I think that in terms of like specific trends that I'm keeping an eye out for, I think that the emergence of bridges, and I think it's been playfully termed the bridge wars, is something that I'm keeping a close eye on in, in terms of how do you connect 
currently disparate blockchain ecosystems. And then I think the second thing that I think about is around how do you, aside from bringing on like institutions or thinking about other avenues by which to spur more Web3 adoption, I think that how do you raise the collective perspective around Web3? I think taking it back to this class, a lot of our time early on was spent conveying Web3's emergence in the context of broader innovation cycles. And it's pretty short-sighted to view this space point in time on either side of the equation. So if you're somebody who is a crypto zealot, who thought crypto was going to go to the moon a few months ago, here we are squarely in a bear market. And then I think on the other side for skeptics that are laughing at where we're at right now and probably eschewing the poor user experience that crypto provides its users right now. The question I would say to those would be, would you evaluate the merits of, let's say, like the mobile internet based on the development of, let's say, like MySpace alone? Because some people would argue that sort of the moment that we're in with respect to Web3's development overall. So we try to convey that that sense of perspective to students. And I think that, funny enough, like Web3 is still a point of skepticism for a lot. We actually scanned the class at our last class and nearly had Half of them said that they still think, in spite of all this, that Web3 is a fad. And honestly, that is a point of pride for Johnny and me because we thought that it was important that we gave an honest portrayal of concept versus promoting it wholesale. And when it comes to continuing to play in the space or learning more, dipping your toes in, I think that it's really important to come in with two things, healthy skepticism and then proper perspective. And so as I look to expanding my involvement in the space, a lot of it is going to be in service of promoting those two elements. Thank you so much for the initiative uh, and making the Web3 series a reality. So as you guys are about to graduate and officially earn your MBAs, then the question is who are you going to pass the torch down to to ensure that the Web3 speaker series continues here at Haas? Yeah, right now it's a big TBD. The end of school, as you can imagine, is a busy time, but we both think that it's time for Haas to consider institutionalizing this subject matter. So we're going to run it up the flagpole and explore what a formal class could look like. But I think another avenue that we're exploring that we would be you know, excited to see potentially come to fruition is to pass the torch to a student or sets of students that share a similar passion for going beyond themselves and, you know, making a class as enriching and satisfying personally as it has been for us. Yeah. And I guess to add on to that, we, Nick and I have been very emboldened and I guess flattered by the many students in the class have told us that it was either their top class at Berkeley Haas that they took, or it was one of the top classes they took, which I mean is quite an honor given the great teaching and faculty and everything that are at, at Haas. And so I think it's with that kind of spirit that we think that a top business school on the West Coast focused on being an innovation hub should have this ongoing Web3 focused class that really teaches people these concepts that are have the potential to change the future. And we, you know, I think we did it in a pretty unique way that is difficult to just let a you know, incoming student just kind of slot in and do it in the same way. Like we both draw in a lot from our unique experiences and history in the space and networks. And so, yeah, we hope and love to stay on and continue the push and continue Berkeley Haas's foray into Web3 if they'll have us. Well, that's awesome. Love the ambition. So yeah, I think we'll wrap up here. If, if there's anybody listening who has an interest in continuing the Web3 series, definitely reach out to Johnny or Nick. Contact in is in the description uh, and I'm sure that they'll be happy to give the proper guidance to ensure that the speaker series continues. So thanks so much, Johnny and Nick. Congratulations on the series and for graduating and Haas is going to miss you. Awesome. Thanks so much, Paul, and really appreciate you having us on board and 
love what you're doing with the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Paul. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Around the Block at Haas. If you enjoyed this episode and know someone who should be our next guest, please email us at Podcasts with an S at berkeley.edu. Until next time, this is Paul. This is Amaya, and we'll see you around the block.